Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Here's our big idea for our, our time together this morning. God is both just to judge sin and gracious to forgive it. God is both just and gracious as He judges sin and forgives it. This passage we have in front of us is a doozy. It's straight out of the Jerry Springer show itself. And as we dig in, we're going to find alternate reactions as some bear the full consequence for their sin as their physical life is ended, while others receive mercy. And we have to step away and we have to just say, God is just to judge and gracious to forgive sinfulness. And then to kind of rest in the grace. We have a lot to cover this morning, and I want to kind of dig into three different sections that we have. First, Judah's family tree is marred with sin. We've been studying in the book of Genesis. We've seen the line of Abraham continued, and there's just sin after sin after sin brought to this family line, brought to Abraham, and then to Isaac, and then to Jacob, and now to Jacob's sons. And we're going to see this kind of continued in verses 1 through 11. And, and then Tamar is going to be introduced to us in verses 12 through 26. She's going to trick her own father-in-law, Judah, and we'll see the nature of that discussion. And then in verses 27 through 30, we'll see the denouement. We'll see kind of the, the settling in of this whole story where Tamar adds to Judah's family tree. And uh, we want to just kind of approach this this morning just with grace and kindness. There's a way for me to approach this text with self-righteousness and to say, I'm not like these people, but in truth, I am. I am also a sexual sinner. I also have brought sexual sin to the table, and I cannot just approach this with self-righteousness, and not, neither can any of us in this room. So with that said, we approach it. God is both just to judge and gracious to forgive. Let's find ourselves on the gracious side this morning. Look at chapter 38, Genesis chapter 38. We're going to start in verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. See what happens in these verses. Verses 1 through 5, Judah takes a Canaanite wife and has three kids as we read verses 1 through 5. And so what happens, verse 1, Judah comes down. Basically that means that he's traveling south and he's coming down off of the elevated Jerusalem area and coming down from there. And he comes down and he sees his friend, Hira the Adulamite, right? This guy's mentioned three times in our passage here this morning. He's like a bad influence, right? Like every time that he's mentioned in the passage, Judah is doing something he shouldn't be doing. 
And namely, what happens in these first verses is that Judah meets a woman through his friend Hira, right? Uh, Like they're doing the wingman thing, and sure enough, he meets his wife, and he marries his wife. But the problem with this is that his wife is probably a Canaanite. And we've seen throughout Genesis like how... uh, Isaac was forbidden to marry anyone that was a Canaanite, that Isaac wanted uh, Jacob to go north to his ancestors so that he wouldn't marry a Canaanite. And sure enough, what does Judah do? He comes down, he meets this Canaanite woman, and it just seems very whimsical. In fact, there's not even any recording of a marriage ceremony or anything else. And as verses 3 and 5 start, it's just like they start popping out kids, right? Ur, you know how he got his name, right? Like the baby's born, Doc turns to Judah and says, what, what are you going to name him? And he goes, right? Pastor's joke, dad's jokes, right? It all just blends together, right? But then he has Onan in verse 4 and Sheila. There's a good boy's name. That'll get him beat up on the playground in verse 5. And we really learn more about these characters in verses 6 through 11. See, what happens in verses 6 through 11 is Judah's sons act wickedly with Tamar. And we're going to see this. Look at verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that his offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to uh, give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then the Lord said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, is grown up. For he feared that he would die like his brother's. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. What on earth is going on? I told you it was becoming like a Jerry Springer show, right? Ur marries Tamar, but then dies. See, Judah takes a wife for Ur. That means that Judah, the father, is involved in this whole process, and he takes a wife for Ur, and they get married. And, uh, but Ur was so wicked before the Lord, in verse 7 it records, that, that God actually kills him, that God actually kind of takes him out of the picture. Paul will later kind of describe in the Bible, in the New Testament, Paul's later going to describe that there are some who have sinned uh, in such a way that they have fallen asleep in 1 Corinthians 11. We, we see in Acts 5 where Ananias and Sapphira lie about an offering and God immediately strikes them dead. We have all kinds of pictures throughout the scriptures of those who had sinned so wickedly before the Lord that, that God actually chose to take them out of this world. So that's what's happening with Ur. Even though we don't really get a good description of what happened, that's what's going on. Well, it's not just Ur. It's Onan. And so Onan also dies in verses 8 through 10. In the wake of Ur's death, Judah asks Onan, his second son, uh, to kind of impregnate his sister-in-law. And just so you know, this will later be pretty common. In fact, if you kind of understood ancient Near Eastern cultures, this whole idea of a Leverite marriage was, was pretty common. And it was later to be codified in the law in, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, where it's kind of said, hey, in order to preserve this, this brother's line, if you have a brother who dies, the brother of that individual will uh, impregnate the wife so that they can produce offspring so that that line can continue. The problem with this whole thing is that it actually creates some tension 
uh, like it does here. It creates a conflict of interest. Such is the case with Onan, right? Onan would be replacing the heir of the firstborn son, his brother Ur. And if he did so, what that would do is actually mean that his own sons, his biological children, would not receive the birthright of inheritance. He would actually go to this son that he fathers with Tamar. And so Onan's doing the math, right? And he's, he's doing this wicked thing uh, where he's not impregnating Tamar. And not to get too down and dirty into the details of what's happening, we just need to know that he's choosing not to do what his father has asked him. And it's because of this wickedness that God also puts Onan to death. So if you're keeping score at home, there's two brothers given to Tamar that are dead. What happens then is that Judah is afraid of Tamar. Verse 11 right? That's what he says. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. And he feared that he would die. Like, Judah's not stupid. He's seeing uh, Ur married Tamar, died. Onan marries Tamar, dies. What's going on here? So he's slow to give his son Shelah. It's here that we just stop and consider something. God hates wickedness. God hates wickedness. See, Judah's sons bring wickedness into the picture, just sinfulness into the picture of of their relationship with their wife, Tamar. We really don't know what Ur's wickedness was, but Onan's sin was spelled out with such clarity, it makes us all blush. There's a lot of motivations available to Onan, isn't there? He, he did what he did because he was sexually selfish, right? And Judah just could have said, no, I'm not going to impregnate her. I'm not going to do this. But instead, what he chose to do was actually engage in sexual activity, but in such a way that it would not impregnate her. He did so in such a selfish way. But it's not just that. It's, it's financially selfish as well, isn't it? Uh, Onan wants to see his own sons progress and, and become kind of the, uh, the patriarch themselves later on. But we also need to stop here and consider that Onan's motivation, whatever it was, was so costly in regard to the covenant that God had made with Abraham. Remember, God promised Abraham that he would have descendants, as many as the sands of the seashore, as as many as the stars in the sky. And here's Onan stopping the uh, progeny of one of Abraham's heirs. See, Onan has no regard for the promise. And not only does he deny Tamar her rightful duty, He also acts so wickedly to take a son away from Judah. And we should take note. We should stop and consider that God's holiness will not accommodate sinful rebellion. God describes himself as consuming fire in Deuteronomy 24. You know, in in present day, we love this statement. We say, uh, 1 John, you know, God is love. And we claim that, uh, you know, as this kind of overarching banner of who God is. God is love. But we also gloss over this statement that God is consuming fire, that he is of such holiness and purity in his person that he cannot be around sin. 
There's a, a statement made in Exodus 34 where, where Moses is asking God to see his glory. God, show me your glory, Moses says to him in Exodus 33. Well, in Exodus 34, the Lord passes by Moses. He covers over the cleft of the rock with his hand and then repeals it so that Moses can just catch the backside of God's glory. And he describes himself this way. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And, and so far, with God describing himself, the 21st century person is completely on board, aren't they? We're saying, yeah, God is love. God is one who forgives. God passes over our transgressions. But look at what he says next. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of fathers on children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So we see that God is not only a God of grace, God is a God of justice. And He cannot tolerate rebellion against His righteousness, against His sovereign rule. See, we have names from our Bible like Ur and Onan, or Nadab and Abihu, or Uzzah, or Ananias and Sapphira. These people felt the holiness of God in their skin. These names rose up in some form of rebellion and went down to the dust in defeat. See, the truth is that that God will judge wickedness. But we also want to see here for our purposes this morning that God isn't vexed by our own sinfulness. This doesn't kind of provide a detour for God. You know, man, God's up in heaven going, I really had plans for Ur. Too bad he went and did this wickedness. In fact, the statement from Joseph in chapter 50 will apply to chapter 38. See, Joseph, later on in the story, is going to look back on this, and he's going to say this to his brothers. He said, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. See, our sovereign God will use the sins of Ur and Onan to bring about righteousness and his plan. Let's keep going then. Chapter 12 or chapter 38, verses 12 through 26, we see that Tamar tricks Judah. And it adds to a long line of trickery. If we were to kind of just lay out all of the trickery here in Genesis, remember uh, Jacob deceived his father to steal his brother's blessing. That was after he had already deceived Esau a few times. And so Jacob deceives Isaac. And then uh, he goes out to work for Laban for years, and he's deceived by Laban. And when he leaves Laban, he deceives Laban. But then when he comes to the land, he himself is deceived by Judah and his brothers as they bring the bloody coke of Joseph to him, and Jacob is deceived. So now Judah is the deceiver, and here, what happens here in Genesis 38 is Tamar deceives Judah. There's just a whole lot of lying going on. Well, let's look at verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. There he is again. When Tamar was, old, was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim. 
which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at, at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, Well, what will you give me uh, that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from, a, from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. See, what happens here is that Judah's wife dies, and he goes to this place called Timnah. Now, later on in the Bible, if you remember the person Samson, Samson meets his first wife in Timnah. Apparently, Timnah is like the Old Testament Las Vegas, right? You go there, and what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? But this stands in contrast to Jacob, who refused, oh, excuse me, go, go back for just a second. See, Timnah is where Samson was, was also there. And what happens then is Judah, his wife dies, and as he finishes his comfort, you know, his mourning, he decides to go out. It stands in contrast to the life of Jacob, who is, is refusing to be comforted at the end of the last chapter. Well, Tamar hears of Judah's plans, and she also heads to Timnah. And she, she hears, and in verse 14, she kind of does the math. She realizes that Sheila has grown up now, and that Judah has not given her uh, Sheila, for lack of a better way of saying it. And she takes this plan of action, right? She takes off all of her widow's clothes. Uh, she dresses herself like a temple prostitute, and she knows that this is going to give her access to Judah. Notice this, Tamar so understands the patterns and the thoughts of her father-in-law that she knows exactly what to do to get sexual access to him. This, if anything is condemning of Judah's character, it's Judah's actions in this moment, or Tamar's actions in this moment. So Tamar knows exactly how to take advantage of Judah. And so Judah thinks Tamar is a prostitute in verses 15 through 19. Again, Judah saw nothing wrong with participating in what would have been a false religion, right? She is dressed up as a temple prostitute to a foreign god, and Judah is partaking. Judah is participating. See, Jim Hamilton writes about this, and he says, In the ancient world, there was no such thing as a secular prostitute. They were always tied to some form of worship or another. And so this sexual expression is always tied to some other deity, and and Judah has no qualms about this. So there's some haggling about the details of the whole interaction. They negotiate a price. There's a female goat that's going to be exchanged, and then they negotiate what would be called a pledge. And so Judah hands over his cord and his signet and his staff. This is like basically handing someone your credit card today, saying, uh, I'll pick this up when everything is done. And so uh, in verses 20 through 23, all of this kind of comes to roost. All of this is going to be exposed eventually. But look at verse 20 through 23. When when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the called prostitute who was at a name at the roadside? And they said, no called prostitutes have has been seen here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men 
uh, of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent her this young goat, and you did not find her. What on earth is happening here? Well, they can't find this prostitute. And this is an embarrassing thing, right? Because now you have your financial well-being tied to some person that you don't even know who it is. Like we said, it's kind of like giving someone your credit card. Well, it's out there, and there's no cancellation policy, right? And see, the last thing you really want is to go around town asking where a certain prostitute is. This brings deep shame, and it's reflected in verse 23. Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. But the things hidden are going to be revealed all the same. In verses 24 through 26, the story progresses even further. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she, went, uh, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. See, Judah is exposed in his hypocrisy, right? Judah is ready to burn his daughter-in-law. Judah wants to throw the the full weight of, of the the law at Tamar, as it were. But in so doing, he's also ignoring his own history in adultery. It's here that, that Judah's sin is about to be exposed, isn't it? But what happens is Tamar kind of turns the tables on her, on him. She brings out Judah's items, the cord, the signet, the staff, and Judah is caught red-handed. And the thing about it that really stings is that he's just prescribed a punishment for the sin that he himself has committed. He's just said that she should be burned for her sin, and now he is caught in the exact same sin himself. Judah's response in verse 26 is so telling. Judah identified them. Remember last chapter, in in chapter 37, when they bring the bloody robe of Joseph to to Jacob and he identifies them? Well, it's the same term that's used here. Judah identifies his belongings and he says, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. There's three things that happen here, right? First, Judah sees righteousness beyond his own in Tamar. Second, he recognizes other wrongs, namely that he hasn't treated Tamar as rightly as he should. And then finally, he stops taking advantage of her. See, as much as God hates wickedness, there's something to be said here about God's love for righteousness. See, what happens is that Judah acknowledges Tamar's righteousness. And we might say, wait a minute, how is Tamar righteous in this? Didn't she go and sleep with someone that wasn't her husband? Didn't she present herself falsely? How is she righteous in this situation? Here she is, she's deceiving, and she's sleeping with her father-in-law, and the Jerry Springer show just keeps going on and on. See, if righteousness is being right with God, how is she righteous? If righteousness is doing the things that God would see as right, how is she righteous? 
See, the issue isn't really that Tamar herself is righteous. It's really that Judah wasn't. If you look at what Judah is saying, saying she is more righteous than I. I have sinned. I've broken God's commandment. What's really being exposed that Judah is acknowledging his own lack of righteousness. See, we would think, wouldn't we, that the sons of Abraham, the ones that are exposed to God himself and receive these great promises, and those descendants from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, uh, the descendant of Jacob himself who had dreams about God where God was promising himself, don't you think Judah would be the one that would be most righteous in this passage? But it doesn't work out that way. Remember that we've now seen these four eldest sons of Leah be morally disqualified. Back in chapter 34, Levi and Simeon are murderous. They wipe out an entire town. And here, Reuben and Judah are adulterous. See, Judah's character is put fully on display. It was Judah who opportunistically suggested that they sell their brother Joseph for money. It was Judah who took his wife from a foreign land. It was Judah who mistreated Tamar by denying her Sheila, his son. It was Judah who decided to pursue a temple prostitute. It was Judah who was condemning Tamar to death. And in this moment, he is absolutely exposed in his sin. See, while God ends the life of the wicked prematurely, he preserves the life of the righteous. We see this in Tamar. Tamar is willing to lay down her life, isn't she? She recognizes the risk of what's about to happen. When she's found to be pregnant, she recognizes that this will be condemning to her amidst her father-in-law and others. Tamar exhibits more hope in the promise than any other character in chapter 38. She, she exhibits more hope in God's righteous line through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob than anyone else. We've got to stop and think, Tamar's a widowed individual, right? Why doesn't she just go and get another Canaanite husband? Why doesn't she just marry someone else? Why is she so dedicated to living this life inside the family of Judah? Probably because she trusts in the promises of God even more than her husbands did. See, God is one who ends the wicked and preserves the righteous. See, what happens then in, in the preservation of righteousness in verses 27 through 30, we see why this story is recorded for us. Look at verse 27 of chapter 38. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. What's, what's up with Genesis and weird birth stories, right? I mean, remember we had, uh, you know, Jacob and Esau, where Esau is, is coming out of his mother, and Jacob reaches his hand out and grabs the leg of his brother in the birth process? Never in a thousand years have I heard such a story. 
other than in the Scriptures. And now we have this weird thing where Perez is sticking his fist out and they tie a, rear, a, a red cord around his wrist and then his brother comes out before him. Excuse me, actually, Zerah was the one who came out first. And all of this is for naught. See, Jacob came out second, but still received the birthright of the firstborn son. And here, Perez is technically born second, since Zerah's hand came out first, but he receives the birthright later on. It's him, through him, that the promise is carried on. And we'll see that uh, later on in the Bible in, in places like Ruth and eventually in Matthew chapter 1. See, when we get to chapter 49, Jacob hands out blessings to each of his sons, but Judah's blessings specifically will be significant. See, Jacob tells Judah that the scepter, the kingship, will, will always be with Judah's line. That despite his sinfulness in this chapter, in chapter 38 and chapter 37, God would be gracious to Judah in a way that he didn't deserve. See, Judah's great-grandson would eventually be a man named Boaz. And Boaz would have a descendant named Jesse. And Jesse's youngest son, David, would become a man after God's own heart. And, And God would promise David that a man would sit from his own lineage, would sit on the throne forever. And that person would be Jesus Christ. See, such is the significance of this story. We stop and we just say, that's a ton of information, Jason. What are we talking about? God's redemption does not go on without righteousness being preserved and wickedness being punished. Yes, God strikes down Ur and Onan in their wickedness, but he also preserves righteousness through the self-sacrificing efforts of a Canaanite woman. It's from this point forward that Judah seems to be a changed man. In fact, one commentator I was listening to this week describes this as Judah's conversion experience. This is where Judah changes, and every time we see him from this point forward, he's actually kind of willing to substitute himself for someone in a worse position than himself. Most notably, uh, God's promise to Abraham is coming true in this passage. God's lineage is being carried on, uh, and eventually that one through whom all the nations will be blessed is going to come from this very story. But we're going to stop this morning, and I just want to pull this out. God preserves righteousness, and He punishes wickedness. God is a God who preserves righteousness, but punishes the wicked. I feel like in our day, we kind of pass over that second truth. We love to talk about grace and kindness, and mercy, and all of those things are true. But can I just submit to you this morning that we don't understand grace until we understand God's justice. We see bits and pieces of God's justice in this passage, but I want to unpack this a little bit more for us this morning so that we can get our hands around this. See, God preserves righteousness, and He punishes wickedness, and it's a logical necessity that if if God is going to be God, He has to do both of those things. If God is going to be one who rules over his world and his universe, he has to be one who punishes those who rise up against him. God cannot be God if he isn't in some sense opposed to those who oppose him. That is, any God must punish those who set themselves opposite to them. 
And we just see this logically. We see this also biblically it works out that there's this natural tension that rises between righteousness and wickedness. We've seen this in the book of Genesis. It's been shown to us that uh, God punishes wickedness in Genesis chapter 6 where he destroys all of the life on earth, but he shows his preservation of those whom he favored in Noah and his family, doesn't he? God punishes an entire city in Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, but he preserves Lot. Here, God ends the lives of Ur and Onan because of extreme wickedness. If we were to kind of fast forward to Deuteronomy chapter 30, the book of Deuteronomy is this giving of a second law where the people of Israel are about to enter into the promised land and Moses is retelling the story of the law. And in chapter 30, Moses is making this really interesting claim. He says, see, I have set before you today life and good and death and evil. And he goes on to tell them, and they say, if you do good, you will be multiplied in the land. You will prosper. You will flourish in the land. But when you do wickedness, and he doesn't doubt that Israel will do wickedness, when you do wickedness, you will receive hardship. You will be kicked out of this land. If we move forward even further, Psalm chapter 1 We have this description. How how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. See, the righteous person, as someone describes, is like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. But the wicked are not so. They're like chaff which the wind drives away. He goes on and he concludes this psalm and he says, The Lord watches over the way of the righteous. He preserves the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And we go forward through Israel's history, the times of kings. We see prophets raised up to point out the wickedness of king after king after king. And this is some two-thirds of the Old Testament where we're shown time and time again the wickedness of men. We have statements like Jeremiah 17, 9, uh, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Ezekiel chapter 11, I will take out your heart of stone. See, all of this culminates to the coming of Jesus Christ. And throughout the life of Jesus who lives righteously, who does right time and time and time again, yet he is amongst sinful men and is receiving rejection after rejection after rejection. And it culminates to the cross where the perfect righteous Son of God is put upon a cross and is nailed to it for our sinfulness. So that righteousness and wickedness come into final conflict. See, the cross presents to us what seems to be a paradox in God. How will God, who is love, also be just? How will a God who defines himself fully as loving be just? And it's at the cross that we find both things perfectly displayed. I want to highlight the way Paul speaks in Romans chapter 3, verse 26. It was to show, this is Jesus' death, it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. He's just. He's punishing sin in its totality. He is laying the sins upon the shoulders of Christ and He is punishing those sins with finality for all those who would have faith in Christ. Christ. 
so that you and I don't uh, bear the onus before God. We don't bear our responsibility. The wrath of God no longer abides on us, as John 3.36 says. Now it has been laid upon the shoulders of Christ at the cross so that you and I can receive the righteousness of Jesus. He's also the justifier. He pronounces us righteous in His presence. He shows His grace to us so that you and I are recipients of divine mercy if we have faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. See, God showed His justice at the cross, but He also showed us grace at the cross. You and I were Onan's you and I were errs, but we've been treated like Abraham. This morning, if you are in Christ, the beauty is there is no condemnation. The beauty is that the wrath of God has been satisfied by the substitute that He has provided in the death of Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you are a recipient of undeserved favor from God. You have the promise that someday you will be gathered to God's presence. You will share a meal with Christ. This morning, I want to just submit to us that in order for us to understand what it is to be a recipient of grace, we first have to look God's justice in the eye. We first have to understand that God has wrath at sin. And we look at the characters like Ur and Onan and all of these, and we see that God strikes down men for far less than I've committed in my life. We saw it in our liturgy. Paul affirms Christ came into the world to save sinners of which I am the foremost. See, this morning what I'm advocating is for us to look and see that God continues his gracious purpose by meeting sinners like us with his grace. God continues his purpose in history and in salvation by by taking us in our sinfulness and extending grace and mercy that we didn't deserve. I wonder sometimes if, if we, uh, we as the church have spoken so much about God's grace and have just a deficient sense of His justice. If we just don't even have a category to describe that, that God hates our sinfulness, that God loathes the, the things that we do that are against His character and His person. That we have coworkers that uh, live among us that uh, pursue sins and, and other things that are not pleasing to God or our neighbors or our own sins that we ourselves perform and we just kind of gloss over those things. And most notably in our own lives and our hearts, the way we think about ourselves. We, we want to run to grace, but we want to gloss over and pass by the justice of God. And I'm not advocating that we wallow in our sin. I'm not advocating that you just have this kind of ongoing spiritual depression because you are a sinner. Instead, what I'm advocating is that you have rich joy because you see what your sin deserved. 
That you see yourself as the one who should have been placed upon a cross, who should have been punished for your sinfulness, who deserved an eternity apart from God in a place called hell. And now, by God's grace, God has fully made the payment for us as Jesus bore our punishment and gave us His righteousness. I want to pray this morning that God makes us a people after His own heart in this way. We don't wallow in self-pity or self-loathing or anything else, but instead we, we find a way to rejoice in God's grace to us in Christ. We find a way that we look for righteousness. We shed off wickedness and we try to please God as we've been raised to new life to do. We pray to that end. Lord, we ask now that you would create that in us. Create a sense of hatred for our sin. Lord, allow us to pursue righteousness because you have made us righteous through faith in Christ. Lord, we don't fulfill the law to make ourselves right with you. You have made us right with you through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But now that we trust in him, Lord, make us righteous before your throne and help us to trust in you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.